And I'm going to talk to you about the God you don't know that you need to know. That's what Paul said. He preached about an unknown God to the people in Athens. So Acts chapter 17, and we'll pick up in verse 15. Acts chapter 17 and verse 15. We are currently studying through the book of Acts in the New Testament this year. That's what we've dedicated this whole year from. We're going verse by verse through the book of Acts. And we're in chapter 17 now. And Paul's traveling. He's on the move. He is going from city to city, town to town. And um, he's, he's, his life is dedicated to preaching the good news of the gospel. Now, it's, it's one of the most important bit of news anybody could ever hear. Have you not noticed all we get is news? I mean, there's, there's some new variant out. There's some new um, uh, battle going on. There's some new prospect for economic collapse. It's that constant flow of news. It's nice when you got some good news, amen? And it's nice when you've got something that never changes. It just is good. So he's out preaching the good news. I mean, what is the good news? It's that God has intervened in human history. Sometimes in, in judgment, like in Noah's day, but sometimes in absolute wonder, and that is when Jesus was born. That's why we have Christmas. Why the world, the world doesn't understand why it is such, why there's such a joy about Christmas. But there is the wonder that God became man. That's the, the, the truth of the gospel is that God has intervened. So he's headed towards Athens. Athens is the very heart and the soul of the Greek Empire. Now, the world was, the Western world was not Greek anymore. They were Roman, but Greece had been for some 400 years been a massive world empire, especially under a guy named Alexander the Great. And Paul has moved from the, the northern areas of Macedonia, and he's now down in the southern area in the big city of Athens. Look in verse 15, chapter 17 and verse 15. This is where we left off last week, and they that conducted Paul, conducted meaning they transported him, uh, they got him on his way, they brought him unto Athens. And then receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they, the men that went with him, departed. So he said, as soon as he got there, he says, go back there and tell, uh, up there in a the little town called Berea, Silas and Timothy, they got to come join me. So he's just walking into Athens and he's overwhelmed. He realizes he needs help preaching to the lost there. He cannot fulfill his, his ministry, cannot fulfill his calling alone. So he sends for Tyler, Silas and Timothy to join him as fast as he can. But while he's waiting, he discovers a rare opportunity to preach. God opens the doors we're going to see here. Go to verse 16 now. 16. Now, while Paul waited for them, so he's waiting for Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. Now, I don't know if you notice, but sometimes you open up your, your roller in the morning, and you pull your curtains back, and it's gray and dismal, and your spirit sinks. Sometimes you get a phone call from somebody, and, you know, something's wrong, and your spirit sinks. Well, his spirit is stirred. Something is activated inside of him. And when he saw this, it was when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Wholly given means completely addicted to idolatry. Keep going. Let's just keep going down to verse 21. Therefore disputed he in first in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. 
Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. They ran into him. They saw this guy passionately talking about all kinds of things they never heard of. They encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others some, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him unto a place called Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean. And then Luke tells us, for all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing on YouTube. They loved something new. Now, Paul stirred up. What's he, what's he, what's motivating? What's pushing him? Well, it's what he saw. And I've got a picture. This is actually in Athens. And the streets in Athens were lined with dozens upon dozens of pillars where they had gods and goddesses on both sides of all the main streets. And then next to them would be a small little altar or a small little plaque to smaller, more lesser goddesses and gods. Now, I want you to understand there, look back there in verse 16. While Paul waited for them, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city addicted to idolatry. It was a city full of idols. They say at different times, uh, when, in the heyday of, of uh, Athens, just before Paul got there, there were as many as 10,000 gods being honored throughout the year. Every day was dedicated to a new god and loads of them. And so people sort of just went, it's kind of like going out to eat. <laughs> you know, like you say, well, what restaurant will we go to? Well, they had, well, what temple shall we go to? There was a constant movement of trying to worship all the gods that they knew about. So there are statues and images and pictures and temples to hundreds and hundreds of gods and goddesses. And they were addicted to it. It wasn't something they hated to do. They were, they were addicted to idolatry where when they heard of a new God, they would always uh, create a new temple or a new altar or a new statue to some new God. They were, they were addicted to them. But what moved Paul the most was they were ignorant of God. You see, there are some things that ought to stir up the Bible believer. Now that you've read the Bible, it ought to stir you up to think about all the false religions and idolatry around the world. I don't have a picture but I, listen, if you ever find yourself in India, you'll find shop after shop after shop with thousands of small little idols that you can buy and bring home. I had a friend named Rajan, and in his home, he had a corner of his house, uh, of, his, of his sitting room. We had dinner with he and his wife, Nita and I did, and the corner had a cabinet, and it had like six or seven layers. It was top to bottom filled with at least 3,000 small little idols that he had brought from home. He wore a ring on all of his fingers. Every ring was a different idol, was to a different god or goddess. Every night he passed by and he made sure he looked as, as many of them as possible to try to honor all of them. And it grieved me. I gave him the gospel. We worked together. I gave him the gospel all the time. Slowly, he was more and more interested in how could there be one God? How could that be? He never got saved in the time that I was with him. 
but it, 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 it stirred my spirit to say something and not just say, oh, he's got to be fine. He's religious. Oh, it's just his religion. Folks, it stirs us when we see a world given to idolatry. Second thing that always stirs is the amount of ignorance there is in this world. I mean, I'm in Ireland. I, I used to uh, enjoy the morality that was in this country. At least there was morals here. At least children used to be taught the Ten Commandments. There's not any adult that knows the Ten Commandments anymore. There's an, there's a, uh, a lack, there's an ignorance of God and even reality. You know, look at, the, look at today. Reality is defined by what you want to believe now. If you want to be a moose, if you want to be a cat, if you want to be a train, you can be Thomas the Tank Engine. Do you know there's a school, I'm not going to, uh, there's a school where a kid prefers to be known as a cat, and so they brought in a kitty litter thing for that girl. I'm telling you, reality is gone, and that ought to grieve us. People believe constantly new conspiracies no matter what proof you show them it doesn't matter because reality's gone this is more plausible than that and it's a constant battle on ignorance the lie of education and wealth people have always believed more money more education will make you more happy that's a lie not a story listen you know when you get saved and you don't have two penny two pennies to run together rub together you'll find yourself more happy than somebody has got two million euros and the problem is they got to have another two and then another two and another two and it just grieves you to say you know money is a dead end Paul engaged people about also the coming judgment of God the, the truth is nobody's ready for that I, I, I hope you're getting ready for the up for the coming uh, economic collapse I mean you better wake up it's not gonna be nice when, when Bradker's saying it's going to be a dark winter, you know it's going to be dark. So, but people preparing for a dark winter without power in some times of the day and with tougher and tougher interest rates and all this stuff, people are getting ready for that, but they're not ready for death. They're not ready to meet God. That ought to grieve us. It ought to stir us. So God opens, uh, uh, let me first say, Paul engaged as you saw there, the Jews first, verse 17, as he always does, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews. What's he doing? He's caring about his own people. Now, we got all kinds of different cultures and ethnic groups from different countries. Do you care about your nation? Do you care about your people? Do you care enough to, to talk to them? Say, well, my family's Catholic. Then talk to them. Talk to them like a saved man who used to know everything they knew used to believe everything they believe and say, but you're missing one ingredient, Jesus alone. Tony and I were talking to a woman, a very wonderful woman yesterday, and she had a heart of gold. She's trying to do her best to pray and to, she talks to all kinds, of, talks to Mary and everything. And what was our only message to her? You're missing one ingredient, and that is Jesus only. When you move everything out and you just trust him, that's when you get saved. So Paul Worried about his people. And then God opened an opportunity like it's unbelievable. Look at verse 18. Then certain philosophers, and he mentions two groups, the Epicureans and of the Stoics, they encountered him. They said, what will this babbler say? And others, some said, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them 
Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him. I mean, they invited him and brought him all the way up to a place called Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things in our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. So when, when, you, when you realize this, uh, let me come back to this before I give you the thought there. In the midst of all thy idolatry, philosophers would walk around and ponder the meaning of life. They analyzed new ideas and religions to death until they heard a new one. And the Epicureans and the Stoics heard this young, this man, I don't know if he was a young man, but this man named Paul, having such passion, some things that they had never heard before. And they had to hear more. You know, the Bible's truth is like that. I remember uh, when a woman gave me the gospel, I had never heard that God wanted me. I had never heard that Jesus was Savior. I only heard about God and Jesus and heaven. Never heard about hell, but we heard about the Bible. But none of the dots were connected. And as, as I sat in church the first time, the second time, the third time, eight weeks I sat there, this was brand new to this kid, 17 years old. Never grew up with much gospel, never grew up with much church. And here's this freshness. It attracted me. I loved it. Didn't understand any of it. But I loved listening to it because it was fresh. You know, so many people are ignorant of what you take for granted, what you have, just the fact you read the Bible. You may be, oh, I'm reading Matthew again. This is my 14th time. Hey, that's 14 times more than 95% out there. And if they could just hear, the, the faith coming by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, these Epicureans and Stoics uh, were, were attracted to the novelty, the gospel, and God said, I'm going to use that. And now they, they, they kind of mocked him. They says, what does this babbler say now? When, when an Epicurean or when a philosopher says you babble, what that means is you don't make sense. You're not logical. You're not rational. You don't use rhetoric. Now, I taught in, in Bible Institute, I taught argumentation debate, and you do have to learn some rules about how to present your case. But as Paul is preaching, he's not making perfect sense. He's saying some things that are kind of crude. They're going, ah, oh, he's just a babbler. That's okay. That means we can get in on it too, amen? You don't have to have all the perfect things. There was a YouTube put out years and years ago about five reasons why people don't give out the gospel. And one of the reasons is because we'll flub it up. One of the reasons why Christians don't ever hand out a gospel track and tell people how to be saved is because we know I'll mess it up if I try to explain it. Go ahead and mess it up. Be a babbler. Because you might get somebody's attention. <laughs> and they say, I want to hear more. Amen? So they mocked him. They prejudged him. They says, oh, he's just talking about new gods when, they, when he mentioned Jesus. Now, who are the Stoics? You got two words there, Epicureans and Stoics. Let me start with the Stoics here. The Stoics believe that this is all there is, okay? The things that you can see, feel, touch, hear, nothing spiritual exists. They believe that matter has always existed. It had no creator and it has no end. They believe there's no such thing as sin, only good and bad emotions. So you know what the Stoics did? You ever hear somebody say, oh, he's so Stoic? You ever heard that phrase? This is where it came from. The Stoics believe you shouldn't have any emotion. 
Just get rid of all emotions and we'll all be happy. Oh, we'll all be safe. <laughs> That's how, they were the original Spock on Star Trek. They just, no emotion. They believed that if you just got rid of all emotions like love and hate, we would have a perfect world. Who were the Epicureans? They also believed that there's no spirituality, there's no spiritual realm, there's just physical. But they believe you can have a little bit of emotion. Some of them went really far. But they, all, they believe that you just need to have it in moderation. You need to be in harmony with the world. And if we were all in just harmony, sounds like a good politician now. If we were just in harmony, we would be okay. As long as we didn't hurt anybody else. But all these philosophies were failures, and they knew it. They never could discover uh, the, uh, the answers to the deepest truths and problems about life and death. Romans 1.22 says this, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. 2 Timothy 3.7 says, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, the kids back there, in the hour that they're back there, they get more truth than the professors down at, at uh, uh, UCC can figure in a year because they know God, because they're following what is true, and they know about the heart. They know about more than just things and physics and, and laws of gravity. These, these uh, philosophers were like somebody getting in a car and then closing their eyes and then driving, okay? Now, don't do this uh, on your own, okay? Because what would be, what the philosophers are doing was saying, I know all that I need to know. I can close my eyes and I can feel my way through the road. Well, you know how that ends, don't you? You can't drive very far with your eyes closed. And what we have throughout history is this thing of, oh, I know enough. Or I've discovered enough. Or I, I, uh, I don't need God and I don't need the Bible. I've got an education. And so they drive through life as if they're, they're blind to anything more than they already know and they're going to crash, and they're going to burn. So thankfully, these guys take Paul up to, now this is what it looks like now, but in the day that Paul was there, it was the most beautiful hilltop. It was the center of Athens. It was the Areopagus. It was what we call Mars Hill. It was the, the, the place where all the big muckety-mucks got up, and they talked about the issues of the day and the, the court cases. Uh, there were uh, all the constant news from all over the world was discussed. They considered new ideas and philosophies that would come through Athens. It was the social media hub of the day. This was the original Twitter. And there would be hundreds of men standing around and talking and listening. And Paul's invited to talk to them. What do you think? So verse 22, pick up there in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, and he said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, they were worshiping down at the bottom there. When I beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now he says something really Strong. It's not really uh, a bad thing, but he actually says, guys, you are so idolatrous. And he's appealing to very intellectual people. 
He says, you Athens, Athenians are very superstitious. They were worried about everything. These were grown men who had the best education, and yet they would freak out when a white cat, not a black cat, but a white cat, would cross in front of them. Now, it's changed back in the Middle Ages where they made it a black cat. If a black cat crosses in front of you, then you got bad luck. You ever hear that? Well, it used to be if a white cat did. They constantly, the, the Greeks would go around, and if there was a piece of wood, they would knock on it. They would do it for good luck. These were highly educated men. They feared breaking a mirror. You ever hear somebody saying, break a mirror and you get seven years of bad luck? That goes all the way back to Greek and Romans. They worried about full moons and eclipses. They tried to make every god they found out about happy. Now, they didn't believe in gods, but they said, well, what if there is one? <laughs> what, if, what if this god is the god we need to worry about? And so they're constantly, be like somebody, how many of you ever heard of a lucky rabbit's foot? Okay. Be like somebody carrying a lucky rabbit's foot in there. Well, I keep that for good luck. You know, that's dead, folks. I mean, it's just, he was surprised at them. This city of Athens was filled with temples to the gods Zeus and Hera and Poseidon and Demeter and Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Ares, Hephaestus, Aphrodite, Hermes, Hades, and Dionysius, along with hundreds and hundreds of other ones. So even highly educated people are usually superstitious and idolatrous, terrified of things they can't see. Just read about the lives of uh, Hollywood actors find out how superstitious they are. Read about the lives of politicians and how much they rely on clairvoyance, clairvoyance, is that how you pronounce it? To tell them what's coming up, how afraid they are of omens. A lot of, a lot of the wise of all of these politicians are into tarot cards and into horoscopes because they're afraid of the unknown. Paul then comes along and says these wonderful words. He says, you need, to go, you need to know the God you don't know. Verse 23 again. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this description to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now he sees a way to connect with all of these very intellectual people. He's just a Jew from a, a little bitty backward country way over uh, like 2,000 kilometers away if you travel by land. He's way away. He's there. How is he going to get their attention? He says, I want to tell you about the God that you don't know, the God that you, you worry about, a God that you have forgotten. And um, there's some background here. Let me show you. Uh, uh, there's this guy. About 500 years before the birth of Christ, there was a horrible plague, a terrible plague that was killing the people of Athens. Thousands of people had died, and the religious leaders of all the different temples prayed, and they sacrificed to every known god, and yet the plague continued. Then one of the leaders of Athens, named Nicias, called for a man named Epimenides. I knew I knew how to say it, but now I can't. Epimenides? Epimenides? Yes. Whatever his name is. Uh, they called for this guy who lived on an island called Crete, he was actually a hero of that country, and he asked him what should they do because he seemed to know about things. He came across on a boat, and he said, well, there must be a God that nobody knows about who's behind this judgment. And so we need to humble ourselves before him, and we need to do something to just get his, get his attention to say, 
Lord, uh, to, to this unknown God, wherever we've gone wrong, please accept these lambs, these sheep, in our place. So he ordered that a flock of hungry sheep would be released in the morning. They weren't allowed to eat that night, and they were kept hungry, and they would be let out in the morning onto a grassy hillside uh, just beside a place that later becomes known as Mars Hill. And all the people who were there were supposed to see which ones chose not to eat. Now, normally, if you're hungry in the morning, what do you do? You eat, okay? Normally, you let these sheep out, they start eating, and he says, whichever ones don't eat, mark their place, that's where we're going to build an altar, and we're going to worship that God we know nothing about. So, a few of those sheep went out and then just sat down and didn't eat. And so they marked the places where the sheep were resting. They quickly built simple stone altars there, a few of them there, and they offered those sheep in sacrifice to the God they did not know in the plague. Within a few days was gone. Now what's amazing is one of those altars was discovered uh, uh, in 1820. So when Paul comes along, he finds an altar to an unknown God. It's 500 years old. And people are still coming by and offering and praying to a God they didn't know. And Paul says, I know him. <laughs> I know him. And so this is actually in a museum in, in Rome. And it's basically in Latin. It's saying to the God or goddess that we don't know who you are, but we, we, don't, want to, we don't want to miss you. Now, Paul says some of the most amazing things there in verse 24. Paul says, let me tell you about the God you don't know. And he makes it, this takes one minute to say. There's 222 words in this statement here and what he's about to say. And he's done in one minute. Watch what he says. Uh, I, I, as we finish in verse 23, he says, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain of your own poets said, for we also are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is the offspring of us. That's why he says, is not like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth every man, all men everywhere, to repent. What are the things that he's just, just in a brief few sentences, he says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right to the heart. And it's the same when, when like we went out yesterday, Bill and, and Yuming and I and Tony. When you go to a door, you've got 30 seconds to say something. That's all you've got before they say, ah, I got to go. And Paul in one minute says, a lot. What does he say? God is the only God there is. I hope this works. Yes, there we are. God is the only God there is, which is, which is revolutionary. They're worried about 
hundreds and thousands of gods, and here's this guy saying there's only one. He alone created everything. He made all the dirt, the water, the trees, the mountains, the clouds. He gave everything life. He made the rocks, the air, the stars, the sun, the moon, and all the laws that govern the universe. God created everything. He then says something. He says, and he's separate from his creation. He's not in his creation. Actually, his creation is in him. That was revolutionary. This universe, as big as it is, and it is massive. There's not God way over here and then us over here. Our universe is inside God. That's our God. That's the God who is interested in a little tiny blue speck of a planet, and he's interested in us. He's separate from his creation. He summarizes, he says, he is Lord over all that he created. There's no Zeus or Thor in charge of anything. Only God Almighty. That's why we call him God Almighty. He doesn't need anything. Do you notice how he said? He doesn't dwell in a temple. doesn't need a place to live in. He doesn't need feeding. If you understand how they, they worship their gods, they would collect you know, fruits and vegetables, and they would bring bowls of the best of their crops, and they would set it there as if their God needed to eat. And Paul says, God doesn't need anything. God's not hungry. He's not tired. He doesn't need to be made happy. God doesn't need to be encouraged. He needs nothing. He actually freely gives us life, which is a miracle, and breath. He gives us stuff. What he goes even for, he says he wants to be found. He says he's not far from any of us. He wants to be known. God made all nations from one blood. Guess what? How many races are there? One, the human race. He made all nations. Let's read that again there in verse 26. He has made of, of one blood all nations of men for to, uh, for to dwell on the face of the earth. He made us, the human race, to live on the earth. And he has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He puts you where you are so that you'd look to him. I mean, you're right now here in church. You go through trials, troubles, everything you go through. God confines you, sets you on a course. He cannot make you believe, but he's trying his best to get you to look to him and trust him and call on him. He, he created a problem you went through last week. He'll create tomorrow's problem too so that you look to him and so that you find him and you know him deeper and better than you ever did before. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, And ye shall seek me and ye shall find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. You know, if you want, you can find God. And not that hard. Now, the more intelligent you are, the harder it is. Because the more questions you have that have to be answered before you believe. <laughs> I understand all that. I mean, the story's told of a physicist trying to master uh, Einstein's theory of relativity back in 1905. And the physicist trying to understand this thing called relativity and science. And uh, uh, he's reading through his book on, on relativity and his research paper. And this guy looks up and he can't get out of his chair. <laughs> Because he starts to calculate, hmm, the earth is spinning at 18,000 miles an hour and it's flying through, eighth, through, uh, through space uh, going around the sun at 56,000 miles an hour and the sun is moving around the, 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 the Milky Way at about 1.5 million miles an hour and I'm stuck in this chair because I can't go through the door. 
because he's got too much information. You know, it's just nice to be able to say, I just believe. I've looked at the facts and I know there's a God there and he loves me. And I mean, this universe is working because he ordained it. He wants to be known. And there's nothing like him. He says, God is not like gold or silver or stonework. You can't make God. We actually live in him. Everything you're going through, he knows what it feels like because you're in him. We move in him. We're his offspring. So what is Paul saying? Don't worship things. Don't worship uh, money. Don't worship popularity. Don't worship power. Don't worship and focus on things, the material. They're not important. Idolatry is wrong. It's a waste of time, of your time and your heart. There's nothing like God. Why does it matter? Now, by the way, I want to say all of that is logical and reasonable, isn't it? We're not trying to convince somebody, I've got this beautiful gold statue here. Let's worship it. Why? Uh, because it, it, it gave me a miracle. Well, that's subjective. I mean, everything can be tested except until you get into idolatry, and then it's all by feeling. And all of this about the, the reality and the work of God on our hearts is logical and, re and reasonable. But it matters. Look in verse 30. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, that's Jesus, whereof he hath given assurance to all men in that he hath raised him, Jesus, from the dead. Why does it matter? So what if we're ignorant of God? What does it matter? Well, being ignorant of a law, is you're not free from that law. When I, when I was driving, I, I got a, a, a speeding ticket. I was going 61 kilometers an hour in a 50 kilometer an hour zone. Oh. And the, the guard, it was nighttime. And I'm driving along, and I didn't even pay attention. I knew, I, I thought it was like 80, all right? So I'm going 61, and the, the blue lights lit up, man. I went, oh. Pull me out. You're speeding. I said, Really? I didn't see any sign. He says, doesn't matter. This is a 50-kilometer zone. And he was looking for his few bob to pay towards County City Hall and stuff. But there I was. Ignorance is not an excuse, is it? Folks, why does it matter? People are ignorant of how much trouble they are with God. People worship. They, they have religions imposed on them from birth. And they go, well, this is how I've grown up. Doesn't matter. You know what God has done? It matters because God's been trying to get your attention. I find that most of us, whoever gets saved, we get saved out of trauma, conflict, trouble, disaster, where we hit rock bottom and we look up and we say, God, if you're there. Folks, God's trying to get our attention. And, and if, if we expect that, well, God, if you want to give me attention, why don't you give me three million euros? You would never look again to God. You'd be looking at your euros. That's all you want. You're not looking to God. It's the disaster that usually brings us to God. Why does it matter? God's trying to get your attention. If you look back on your life and stop being so bitter and so upset at your brother and your mom and your dad and, and your friends and, and your boss and the, the, the troubles you've been through, instead of looking at it with all bitterness and look at it and say, God, are you trying to get my attention? Now he'll talk. He constantly gives us proofs that he's there. 
Go back to Acts chapter 14 and verse 15. Acts 14, 15. Paul mentions this fact often in 14 verse 15. Paul says, Sirs, why do ye these things? They were, they were, there was a whole crowd of people getting ready to sacrifice and worship Paul and Barnabas. And he said, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you. <clears throat> we're just like you. And we preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which had made heaven and earth and the sea and the things that are therein, who in time past suffered and he put up with all nations to walk in their own ways nevertheless he left not himself without witness in that he did good to us didn't he he gave us rain from heaven in fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness and with these sayings scarce restrained they paul and barnabas the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them paul often mentioned that god is constantly being good to us constantly trying to get our attention he often, I, I, I thought about this, God often takes his, his word and takes it to people that don't even know God's there. Jonah went all the way to Nineveh, didn't he? And he preached the word, preached repentance unto the people of Nineveh. Balaam preached the word of God to the, to the pagan Moabites. Queen of Sheba came along and she heard about Solomon, all his wisdom. She walked away with the Old Testament, walked away with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. She got the word of God. God brings not only trouble in our life, but he brings his words into our life. Even the Athenians knew that there was a God they didn't know. But why does it matter? Here's the most important, because God has commanded that all men everywhere, this isn't a Jewish thing, this isn't a Greek thing, an American thing, an English thing. This is a, a we thing. This is all of us to repent. What is repentance? This is a judicial word, all right? When, when, uh, if, when I want you to realize this uh, hill is, is covered with lawyers and philosophers, some scientists some people who are claim to be scientists, things like this, and judges. And they're all moving around in Paul's preaching, and he says these words. Look there in verse um, uh, 29. No, I'm back on 14. Let me get to 17. Nope, 31. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. And when he says that, that stops them in their tracks. Because lawyers and philosophers had seen loads of people stand guilty before judgment all the time. They watched as men would say, I'm so sorry for the crimes they had, been, they had done, basically for being caught. And then when they were given another chance, they would go off and continue to do the same. But these men were being warned that a final judgment was coming on them, and they needed to repent. It's one thing when a judge has people constantly saying, I'm so sorry, judge, I'll never do it again. And then the judge being told, you better repent. All of a sudden, he knows the flippancy of words and how meaningless it is to say, I'm sorry. And he uses a word called repentance. And repentance is an attitude of sorrow. You start there. But sorry for what? My kids were always sorry for getting caught. <laughs> oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. Yeah, 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 just because you know you're in trouble. But this is a sorrow for sinning against God. And I don't find people sorry anymore. You know, when we pray, it ought to break our heart that we have 
been negligent to pray. I mean, there is the sin of prayerlessness, isn't there? There is the sin of, of being lazy about giving the gospel out. We just don't feel sorrow anymore about how we rebel against God. Repentance is when you have a lot of regret about the rebellion you have against God. Realizing how much trouble you are in with God. There are two kinds of sorrow. You're in Acts. Go to the right. Find 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Just a few books to the right. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There are two kinds of sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. There is godly sorrow, and then there's worldly sorrow. Look in verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 10. For godly sorrow, it worketh repentance to what? It activates a repentant heart to salvation. That's what we talk about, being saved from our sin, not to be repented of. You never change your mind saying, oh, I think I want to be damned again. <laughs> nope. And then he goes on, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And that's why people commit suicide, because they have sorrow upon sorrow and they have no hope. And that kind of sorrow is deadly. But the kind of sorrow that a person who realizes, God, I'm in trouble with you, but you, you're, you're interested in me, you want to forgive me, that kind of sorrow is repentance. It's also not only an attitude, it's a change of mind. How do you see yourself in your sin? We call it perspective. When you accept the judge as being right, you know, when, when, a, when a person is in trouble with the law and they stand before the judge and they say, well, now, George, you don't understand. There was this. And the judge says, is there evidence? Uh, prosecutor, is, is the evidence in your favor? or in this? And he looks at the evidence, doesn't care what that person says or thinks or feels. And when you finally agree and you go, judge, you're right and I'm wrong, that's repentance. And when you finally can get to that place where you constantly say, Lord, God, I've tried to be right. I've tried to be justify everything I do, and I can't anymore. I'm wrong. You're the only one that's right. And it humiliates you. Instead of wanting, saying, you know, hey, why don't you let me off? Why don't you just be nice to me? Instead, you desire mercy. Mercy is that Act of kindness, you don't, you know, it's, it, grace is getting God's kindness when you don't deserve it. Mercy is not getting the judgment you do deserve. You see the difference? And what is it when people say, well, I'll throw myself on the mercy of the court? Well, that comes from the Bible where repentance says, I'm only trusting mercy now. And I have to say, Repentance is commanded because it is necessary. That is the only way that every man, woman, and child can approach God as a sinner in trouble with God and desperately sorry for their sin. And when they've emptied themselves of their own righteousness and emptied themselves of all of their own abilities and what they've done, and Lord, you've paid attention to all the things I've done, all the money I've given, all the good deeds I've done, and the Lord says, no, I haven't because I only noticed what my son did. Yours is a life of sin. Why don't you dump all that self-righteousness? Why don't you let go of all the justification for your sin? Don't call it mistakes, call it sin. Don't call it, don't call it a bad weekend, call it drunkenness. 
Why don't you just deal with it and be honest? And when you do that, then your hands are empty and I'll fill it with forgiveness. You see how it works? Repentance is how we come to God. There is no salvation without repentance. Because if you took the, God, the gift of God without accepting the condemnation of God, you're a thief. You understand what I just said? A lot of people say, oh, well, I'm not that bad, but I want to be saved. Well, God wants to save you, but if you're trying to take salvation without actually letting go of sin, you're just trying to add it to your pile. And that's a thief. You know what you do? You let go. Stories told of an experiment in the 1950s where they put a cookie in a jar, and the, 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 the top of the lip of the jar was small, so they put a bunch of monkeys in the room, and they'd all fight over that jar. One would put their hand in there to get that cookie, that chocolate chip cookie. And then he'd try to get his hand out. <laughs> and that monkey would scream and run around the whole room, because he couldn't get his hand out and have that cookie. And what does the monkey got to do? Let go of the cookie. And why do most people go to hell? Because they're holding on to sin. They hold on to their self-righteousness. They run around. They scream. They say, God's not fair. No, you won't let go. Repentance. God commands all men everywhere to repent because you can't get saved without it. You can't receive the gift until your hands are empty. Now again, i got to emphasize this. Why? He says there in verse 31, because he hath appointed a day. We call it judgment day. He has appointed men once to die, and after this, the judgment. He hath appointed a day in the which he, God, will judge the world. In righteousness, he'll be right when he judges by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance in all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. He proved that Jesus is our judge by the resurrection from the dead. Remember, this is an arena full of proud lawyers and philosophers and judges. And he says, one man is coming again, and he's going to judge you. That shook him to the core. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead proves that he's more powerful than all the gods they had lined up along their streets because they were all dead. So folks, you cannot be saved unless you humble yourself and repent and you cannot be uh, saved from the coming judgment unless you believe Jesus rose from the dead. Not a lot of people, they believe it. But they don't believe it like it's, like it's going to save them. They just believe, well, I, I, I believe in it like I believe in airplanes. No, I believe it. It was enough for the likes of me. So make up your own mind. Verse 32. Paul then, it says there, verse 32, and when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, well, some mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, not knowing what all had transpired. Verse 34, Howbeit, certain men clave unto him and believed among them which among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Make up your own mind. Look at the evidences. Make up your own mind. Don't leave it to philosophers and, and uh, uh, Peter Hitchens and uh, Richard Dawkins and theologians or Hollywood and politicians. Don't leave it to anybody else. Look at the evidence for design in everything. Look at the evidence for morality from the first cause. Everything has to have a first cause. There's God. Explore the fact of the resurrection. I'm glad Jesus was born, but wow, what, what good is it if he dies and he stayed dead? 
The resurrection is what gets our attention and tells us that baby was king of the world. That baby is God as a man here on earth. That resurrection proves it. Now it intrigued some, like it may intrigue you. you say, well, that's kind of intriguing. Some people may mock and go, resurrected from the dead. I've never seen anybody back from the dead. Well, if you'll search it out, if you'll, if you'll study that empty tomb and the hundred clear prophecies that tell you about Jesus written 700, 800, 1,000 years beforehand, it'll knock your socks off. No one can believe for you. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to believe. Jesus said to a very intelligent man, a very religious man named Nicodemus, and he said, you must be born again. No one can believe it for you. Salvation won't happen to you until you repent and you believe in what Jesus did. So I'm telling you, be skeptical. It is right to be skeptical, but you need to determine to know the truth. And you just go one more place and we're done. Romans chapter 10, go one more book to the right. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Romans 10 and verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, not just Jesus, but what? Yes, Lord Jesus. You know, Paul made it very clear, this is, this is the one above all other gods, above all people. If you would confess with your mouth, he's Lord, the Lord Jesus. And shall believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead. You're going to have to believe in a miracle, folks. You're going to have to believe in the most impossible thing, that God raised Jesus from the dead. What does it promise? Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. It is a hard work to be made righteous by faith, so that anybody can be saved. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. You ought to be able to talk about it. You ought to be able to say, I believe. It's not something you ever want to hide. not something you ever want to be ashamed of. Verse 13, for whosoever, I like that word, what does that mean? You, and you, and you, and you, anybody. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. To most people, God is a big unknown. They need to know him. It took one man, one man, 222 words, a little over about one minute and eight seconds, it took me, I timed it, to read it, to say the gospel. What's it going to take to stir us up so we say something, so that we go start soul winning, so that we take some tracks and we hand out one? What's it going to take? Do we have to have a disaster? Do you have to have another death in the family? Do you have to have something go horribly wrong before you say, God, are you trying to get my attention? Saved or lost, you better look at life and go, God, I'm sorry. I've constantly gotten bitter and angry and upset at people and things. That's you. You've been trying to get me to look up and listen to you, and follow you. What will it take to get your attention? Repentance is a good thing, amen? It's very humbling. It's nothing you can ever brag about. When you repent, you're admitting you're the wrong one. And that's hard, whether you're married, whether you're a Christian, or whether you're lost. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do when you say, God, you're right, and I'm wrong. You need to make up your mind for your soul's sake. Stand with me and bow in prayer. Paul wasn't able to give an invitation at that day. It kind of lent itself. He spoke and then people went ho-hum and they went on their way and he went down the hill not knowing that anybody had really heard what he said 
And as he walked down that hill, probably alone, a couple of people crowded around him and says, Paul, I believe. I, I believe what you said. I want to follow Jesus. And it thrilled him. It wasn't a lot of people. Maybe you'd just be one that say, I believe. If it's that simple, why am I making it so hard? Why am I arguing with God? Why am I resisting his work in my heart? Why am I fighting him when he's trying to get my attention? Father, we bow before you. We've had umpteen times where we've heard about Jesus. Sometimes by people who kind of messed up the message and twisted things. But when we look at what he said and what the Bible says, and it's there in front of us, we have no excuse. Are we willing to follow him? Did he not earn the right to be called Lord? Every step he took in this world during those 33 years, he never imposed himself on anybody. He gently, carefully loved and healed and ministered to and served. And in reward, everyone killed him, rejected him, mocked him, whipped and beat him. And then when they hung him on that cross, they thought he was dead and gone. But he wasn't. Three days later, he got up and he asked once again, will you now follow me? Have I not earned your respect? Have I not earned the right for you to call me Lord? May not call on my name and be saved. Our souls are in a mess, Lord. As a nation, families, we need a savior. We don't need a, 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 a saint or a god or a goddess or a demigod or a, a prayer. We don't need a power. We need a savior. And Jesus is the only one that fits. If there's in this room somebody, anybody, who has been mm, walking in darkness, coming to church and praying to the God they don't know, thinking, well, God, maybe you understand. If you're there, I'll pray to you, but I don't know if you're really there. I pray today they have come to the conclusion you are and that you want them and you love them and you died for them. And all they need to do is cry out to you and ask you to save them now. I pray for the Christians in this room that we realize repentance is a way of life now. It's keeping ourselves humble. And it, and it keeps us burdened for lost people. They need to see a different kind of Christian than the arrogant kind. Lord, I don't want to compete with the Socrates and the Plato's. I just want to give them the gospel. I pray that we would be stirred to be soul winners like Paul today. In Jesus' name, amen.